Welcome to Integrative Conversations, hosted by the Academy of Integrative Mental Health. The Academy expands knowledge to professionals in the mental health community and beyond, using a conscious, experiential, and evidence-based format. Our mission is to deliver comprehensive health and wellness to all by empowering personal and professional growth and confidence. To learn more, visit us at www.academyimh.com. This podcast is intended to provide information as a resource and is not a substitute for mental health treatment, medical advice, or professional training, and the statements and views shared by the guest are their own. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Hi, this is Laurel Sims-Stewart, content developer with the Academy of Integrative Mental Health and your host for today's conversation. Y'all, this episode with Arielle Sokol Ward is so amazing. I can't wait to share it with you. I know we've been on a break here for a bit at Integrative Conversations, and we are just so grateful for everyone's patience and understanding as some of our team members took some much needed time for themselves. So many of us in the healing and helping professions have really come face to face with grief in so many ways this past year, you know, just trying to manage our own grief and trauma, care for ourselves in the midst of it all, while still holding space and being with our clients in theirs. So if you thought before that you didn't really do grief or trauma work, you probably do both of those now. Ariel is the real deal when it comes to both grief and trauma work, so I had such a great time having her on the podcast. This episode, we really dig into what is going on in the brain and body in grief and her experience using a relational model in trauma work, but I feel like we just got to scratch the surface, so we are definitely going to have to have her back for more in the future. So as usual, before we dive in, I wanted to give you an Academy update. We just recently released our resource starter pack for May, Therapy Buzzwords. As a reminder, our monthly starter packs include blog posts, worksheets for clients, practice handouts that you can use in sessions and for yourself, and more. And if you sign up for our newsletter, you also get access to our monthly curated playlist that goes along with the theme of each starter pack, which our regular listeners have probably heard me say before that I love. Don't forget to check the show notes for a link to sign up for our newsletter, and you can get access to all of our resources and starter packs through our website, www.academyimh.com. And of course, as usual, all of our podcast listeners can get 10% off any course or starter pack with the code CONVERSATIONS. All right, I've talked enough on my own. It's time to hear from Arielle and get into our conversation. Okay, Uh, our guest today is Arielle Sokol Ward, LCSWS CCTP2. Uh, Arielle finds it to be most rewarding working directly with clients in a warm, comfortable, and non-judgmental environment. She likes to provide a space where clients feel comfortable processing difficult emotions so they can leave the session feeling a greater sense of resilience, confidence, and happiness. She's there to listen, hold space, and process with clients as they tell their story. As a grief and trauma therapist trained in EMDR and a level two certified clinical trauma professional, 
Ariel knows that processing our past can be an intimidating and vulnerable experience. Foundationally, coming from a relational approach, she's here to tell you that you are not alone in this and she will meet you where you are on your journey. Arielle graduated from the University of Maryland, Baltimore, and has years of experience working with an array of populations. She has been professionally speaking since 2014 and was a 2019 TEDx speaker on finding resilience within grief. She's also a board-approved clinical supervisor. Um, and Arielle is the author of the new book, Adding the E, Perspectives of Grief Through Recounts, Letters, and Poetry. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited to hear about this book and to get to talk to her about her work. I'm so honored and thrilled, truly. Like, I, I can't believe she's letting me take her time today um, to have Ariel. So, Ariel, welcome to Integrative Conversations. I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you. I, uh, I'm excited to be here. My face is already hurting from smiling. So, <laughs> well, hopefully, if that's the injury you incur from this podcast recording, I will. I will be okay. I'm okay with it. <laughs> no yeah. other injuries. Yeah, good. Well, um, so for those of you who, or for those of our listeners who might not be familiar with your work yet, um, and I say yet because they will be, because your book is going to be amazing and. and reach so many people I know. Can you share some about your background with our listeners, how it's impacted your path to the work that you do right now? Yeah. Um, so it's funny. I, um, I recently heard a, a quote and I can't, obviously I can't remember who it's from now. Um, but it, it, is from a, um, a supervision, a clinical supervision researcher. Um, and I can't remember his name, but, um, he talks about how, um, uh, personal and, and professional are this, uh, like, like a, a kind of like a made up concept and that they, they come together quite frequently, frequently. And, um, I kind of feel like that really speaks to what I do because I feel like what I do professionally um, really is so much of my personal identity as well. Um, and how I got, how I got to where I am professionally came from my personal journey completely, um, which maybe some, some people or a lot of people in the therapy field, um, can say, or maybe, I mean, in other fields as well. But, um, when I first started, um, thinking about, you know, what, what I wanted to do, I, um, I went to Towson university for my undergrad. Um, and I had this very impactful conversation with a, um, one of my teachers there, but, but, uh, she was also, a um, like a mentor in a lot of ways. Um, and I think for Elisa one semester, she was my advisor and we had this conversation of, you know, like, okay, I want to, I'm going to apply to grad school. You know what? I don't know what I should, should go for. Um, I don't really know what, what's the best path to get to where I want to be later on. Um, and it was between going to university of Maryland, um, for social work or going to Johns Hopkins for their counseling program. And 
she told me that, you know, like with social work, you can do more. You'll have more opportunity with counseling generally. Um, at least at that time, I, I do think it has changed a bit now, but, um, at that time it was like, if you're going, going to get a degree in counseling, you're going to be a therapist. Um, and I had my suspicions of like, that's what I want to do, but like, I didn't know for sure. So I ended up going to university of Maryland for social work. Um, and for a while I wanted to do, um, work in the domestic violence realm. That was a big passion of mine. Um, however, during my, my years at Maryland, um, I experienced a, a significant loss, um, within myself being, I was, um, I have Crohn's disease and, and I've had it since I was about seven. Um, but I got the sickest I've, I've ever been, um, hospitalized for a really long time for about 30 days and, um, or for 30 days and went through tremendous losses along the way. Um, I had to stop school. Um, I physically, you know, had a bunch of losses, um, and the recovery process from that was significant and it was very long. Um, and at the time I was, uh, dating someone new and his name is Drew and he very quickly became a very significant person in my life. Um, I met him on February 8th, uh, 2014. And, you know, he really helped me in my recovery um, from the illness, um, where I guess from that hospital stunt I did. And, um, it was almost to the day of when I went to the hospital, when I was admitted to the hospital, um, a year later, he passed away. Um, and he overdosed on heroin, um, which he was in recovery from and his death changed my world completely. Um, and I, I became a a very different person and and I I talk about this in, in the book, of course. Um, but there has always been this like before drew after drew timeline. Um, and I went to therapy soon after his death. And I remember thinking like, Oh, this is so to be a grief therapist. Like that's so difficult. Like, why would anyone do? Um, and I really, I, I, I love my therapist. I think she was fantastic. Um, and weirdly enough, like within this journey, I found that like, this is my passion. Um, and I think I first found that about three months after he died, um, when I started a chapter of, a um, of a national organization, um, called, um, grasp, which is grief recovery after a substance passing. Um, because there wasn't any like group therapy for, for this kind of loss. Um, so I, with the help of my therapist, um, she introduced me to this, but I decided, okay, I'm going to start my own. And I was, you know, a participant and a facilitator, um, which is an interesting role that not a lot of people have when they like facilitate a group, that they're also kind of part of the group. Um, so I think that 
that experience really um, like put me in a place and showed me that like, oh wait, I do I do like this space and I feel purposeful in the space. Um, and it just really started from there. Um, I have a background in uh, when I first kind of got into the social work field um, after Drew died. Cause I, I, was still in school. I, I stopped school again when, um, his death occurred. Um, but pretty soon after I started, um, I started up again and I graduated a semester late because of the, the pause the year prior when I was hospitalized. Um, but I graduated with a 4.0, which at the time I was very shocked. And now after having some, uh, just a bit more knowledge <laughs> of like what the brain does and, and how people react, um, when they're in, in situations such as that, um, it now kind of makes sense that I really went like balls to the wall of it and like <laughs> did everything I needed to do to, to be in this, um, kind of perfectly controlled world, um, which I found through school. And uh, I found that doing my own work, um, going through, you know, more more losses and and more grief processes throughout the year, um, which was a very, very challenging year, as you can imagine. landed me in New Zealand and eventually landed me in Austin, um, where I started working on my, um, degree and my licensure and, you know, trying to, to really get to exactly where I am right now. Um, and I, I have a, I have experience working with the, um, unhoused population, um, with the severely mentally ill, with, um, domestic violence victims, um, with eating disorders, I, um, and in the, in the private practice setting, um, and then now having my own practice, um, and being a part of a, a group practice as well with Moonstone Counseling. Um, and I kind of found that like grief and trauma is my cup of tea. Who knew? Who knew? I mean, it's so funny because, I mean, I don't know. I think that does, to your point of uh, earlier about the personal and the professional just being so overlapping, if not the same, <laughs> like in so many ways, is it, it is just a, a thing that I've noticed, especially in in this work, the work that we do um, in healing is it always happens that way, almost in some way, right? Like there's something that we don't want to touch for ourselves. So we're like, no, I'm not, that doesn't seem like a job that I would want to do. You know, I don't want to do grief work or I don't want to do trauma work or, and then that does end up becoming our cup of tea in the work that we really, really do. And we really, really thrive in. So I think like, yeah, it's just, it's just so interesting, so magical the way that that happens in some some aspects. Yeah, and like, and 
you know, I've, when working with the other populations, you know, when I was working in the, um, my first job, my first social work job was a case manager, um, for the mentally ill unhoused population. And, um, if I'm being quite honest, it was a job. First of all, it was a job. I moved to Austin without a job, without knowing. Um, I really knew one person. Um, and that person was someone who was leaving very shortly. So, um, and I just, I came to Austin with, you know, what fit in my car, um, found my roommate on Craigslist, which worked out great. She's great. Um, but we're still friends. Um, <laughs> but a real, uh, a real knock on wood moment, like who right. out. Um, <laughs> but I just, I, I needed, I needed a change and, and, you know, living in, I'm originally from Maryland. Um, I was living in Baltimore when Drew died and, uh, it, I mean, places that we've never been to together reminded me of him, just, just that environment. So I, I needed to leave. Um, <clears throat> yeah. and I love Baltimore. I know, I know people have their opinions, but I, whenever I go back, it feels like magical to me. Um, and maybe a little bit is, you know, my time spent there. It was, it, it obviously drew is like sprinkled, um, like our memories are kind of like sprinkled around Baltimore, but I also knew I, I grew as much as I could. And I feel like the growth was stunted a bit after he died. Um, so moving to Austin, it was like, okay, like, let's start this social work journey of, you know, getting the licensure and, um, and you know, I was, I was hired by Indrel care, um, for a case manager position and, it was tough. It was not, um, I mean, I didn't love it. Um, I met, I met actually my, I mean, two of my best friends there. Um, so that was, I mean, quite amazing. I'm very grateful for, for that. Um, cause I wouldn't have known them otherwise. Um, however, that work, I very quickly knew was like, not my cup of tea. Um, and it was very much like, uh, doing what I need to do to get my hours and, um, which a lot of people I think do, we all kind of put that time in and it showed me, I mean, like things that I, I, I want in a job, things I don't want in a job. And again, like part of this path that led me to where I am. Um, I always say that, like, I, I think the only time that, I have had like a really good relationship with my boss was when I'm my own boss, which is right now. And <laughs> um, that's a, that's a good way to think about it. I'm into that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because I have an authority problem and I'm not afraid to admit it anymore. Um, so I've had really <laughs> incredible bosses and uh, very, very kind bosses, and I still cannot get along with them. Um, so obviously this is a lot about me. I recognize that, but I also knew that like, okay, this is, this is probably like the, 
best path, like to, to, to create something of, of my own. Um, yeah. And it, it, it has been, it's been, I haven't been this happy, I think ever probably, um, Mm. in my, you know, especially my career, but in general too, like, again, because it, you can't separate it totally. So especially working at home now being virtual. Oh yeah, definitely not. (laughs) Now, once, once, now that we're at home, it's like, every part of our life is in this work. Right. But yeah. you, yeah, I think that is where so many of us in this world do sort of thrive is finding a way to let, like, let ourselves be present in the work in a way that's a good fit. You know, it's like, we are, we are the, like ourself is the work being present Right. And we're going to, I know we're going to talk a little bit about that when we talk about the, the relational aspects of it. Um, But I think that's why it works when we can be honest about, okay, like the, this is what is a good fit for me in this. And this is what isn't right. Because then we can actually like dig in and be present with all the parts of ourselves, And that's really where we do thrive, you know? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. exactly. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Well, I want to go back to something that you mentioned a little bit, um, a little ways ago, and you were talking about how, like, I went back to school and I got a 4.0 and I couldn't believe it. But now, like thinking on it, yes, I can totally believe it because I learned about the brain and all of the things that are going on in the process of of grief and, and after trauma. And when we were talking together before we recorded, we were really starting to have a good conversation on the neurobiology of grief and trauma. Um, And so I'm hoping maybe you can give some of your, like, where do you go? What do you think about as far as all, like, that's a huge umbrella, right? But um, what are some of the most important pieces that you bring in into your understanding of it? I really love, um, I think psychoeducation is a, is a very important part of trauma work, um, and grief work and some of the most impactful, I guess, from my perspective, um, you know, what I, what I observe from a client, um, some of the most like impactful conversations I've had have been around psychoeducation, um, when I see a client like really just like, like, it, like it's a, it, um, it's like watching them stop in their tracks and they're like thinking tracks and being like, wait, Oh, like, and it's, it's kind of amazing. Um, but the, the magic of therapy, I think when, you know, we, we can provide a perspective or provide, you know, um, um, like a certain insight that maybe, uh, the client couldn't, um, before Mm -hmm. and just like, Oh, like I never thought about that. And it's, it's like, it's like an amazing, um, moment, I think like, like, like rapport building moment, um, between a client and a therapist. Um, and we both started laughing and I was like, isn't therapy fun? Like, (laughs) Um, so fun it is though 
It is. I, yeah. I have a great time. Um, even when it, even when it's like, even when we're both having a bad time, I'm still having a great time. Um, mm-hmm. cause obviously it's about me and, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think psychotherapy is, or I'm sorry, um, psychoeducation is a really important part because so much of what happens in grief and so much of what happens in trauma are things that we either don't know are happening or we don't have the language um, or, or simply the knowledge to understand in the moment because of where our brains are. So for example, I, uh, last year, I, I can't remember when we, when we first spoke, um, Mm. yeah, I think it was sometime back in December. I I know it's been a little while. Yeah. Um, and, and I, so then I, I, I may have told you that in September I was hospitalized again, um, Mm -hmm. after going through, you know, a significant medical trauma and, um, like knowing that, knowing what I know about trauma, knowing what I know about, um, how our body reacts and how it's so connected to our brain. Um, and therefore how our brain reacts, which is so connected to our body. Um, like I know these things or I know, you know, therapeutic practices or coping skills, and it does not mean that I use them. It does not mean that when I go through a trauma, I'm going to be like, Oh, I'm totally okay. Because I know X, Y, Z, like that's the, Mm. that's the part of it. Like we, we, we can't know that because our brain is therefore affected. Right. Um, Right. So, you know, one of the most impactful things that I, I talk about, um, or what I, what I think is, is so impactful when I talk about in psychoeducation is our stress response. So, um, Mm -hmm. thinking of, you know, fight, flight, freeze, Um, and then there's also two more that people usually don't know about, which is submit and attach. Um, and, you know, for example, I was talking with, um, a client that we're doing, we were doing some verbal processing, but also going into some EMDR, um, about, uh, a a memory and experience of an assault. Um, and sharing this information with her about this is what our body does. And we don't, we don't have control over it. It's our, it's, it's our nervous system choosing and our nervous system, our brain will always choose survival. That is the brain's complete every moment of our life that that's, that's the, that's the goal is to survive. And it will do what it needs to do to survive. So when she is sharing with me this, this experience and saying, you know, just all this self-blame and all this guilt and all this, this, this heaviness that she's carried around because she didn't do anything because she froze and sharing, like giving her some language, giving her some education. It was again, kind of like that stop and like, 
oh my God, like, like, I, like, like giving her information almost about herself that she didn't know, I mean, has been significant in like our work together and, and other things that we've worked on. Um, and something that she's brought up multiple times, um, like thinking back to, to that conversation that we had. Um, and I think that when we can understand and we, we have an understanding of like how our brain works, um, it lends itself to an, like, there's an opening for compassion. There's an opening for, um, self-reflection and understanding. And, um, you know, that wasn't there before because guilt and blame and shame, like just clouded that. Um, so I, I often will talk about like, um, what our, our brain looks like when we've experienced trauma, um, and like how, you know, threat perception, um, is, is, very much enhanced, um, when we have gone through trauma. Um, so like we see what, like, what is manageable, um, maybe before the trauma, now we just see danger. Um, we're, we're kind of stuck in this, in this place. Um, so like there is a filtering system in our brain that like helps us distinguish like, okay, what, what is uh, relevant at this moment and what can kind of like, we can dismiss um, until later on that gets confused yet that gets messed up. So um, what other people normally may not pay, pay attention to traumatized people, like we're hypervigilant. Um, so I, and this also can get triggered when we are re-traumatized when we're, when, when, when we're triggered. Um, so even if we have gone through something, you know, years ago, um, but either we talk about it, even in a, in a safe space like therapy, um, or a trigger happens in the outside world, like these symptoms will come back up. Um, so having that understanding can be really, really helpful for people. Um, and I, I, I really like telling people if they haven't heard of it already, um, of the book, the body keeps a score by Bessel van der Kolk. And, um, <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. The best. And, mm -hmm. and I, I do like, I, I kind of warn people. I'm like, you know, yeah, trauma is my cup of tea, mm -hmm. but even I, thought that, I mean, it's a, it's a dense book. Oh, it's, for sure. It's heavy. It's yeah. heavy. It's so much information. Um, you know, you're, if this is not going to be a weekend read, um, like I, no. I think I read it over a course of a year. Like I take like many breaks and cause it was so, it was like doing a training almost that I had the control of, you know, when I do it. Um, and, yeah. <laughs> but it, it is, I agree. That is so true. And like, and I think it, you know, the, my, my clients that have read it, you know, also found a lot of understanding and, and a lot of that psychoeducation as well. But I give, I can, I, I sometimes will give like a crash course. Like I, um, usually for everyone that I'm doing trauma work with, I will do like a session, a full session, um, of just psychoeducation on like the traumatized brain. Um, 
So another um, part that I really like to share with people is that like, that we have a a nerve that goes um, through the the midline structure of our body called the vagus nerve. Um, So we often will feel like um, heart wrenching or gut wrenching feelings. Um, And one, we try to, we try to dampen that because it's, it's uncomfortable. It's not something that like we really want to experience. Um, so we find ways of dampening that maybe it drinking or drugging or, um, sex or food or, um, like these, these ways of, of coping, um, you know, like finding, um, ways to control our environment because things feel out of control, which is what I think I probably did during school, you know, like things felt very out of control. Um, but you know, a paper I could write or, um, you know, studying for a test or something like that was something I could control. So I put all of this kind of like uncomfortableness into a focus, which we often will see in grief and trauma is that we, um, will identify a space in our life that we feel like we can like put all of our energy to, um, which therefore kind of like cuts off like what we actually probably need to feel, um, which is that grief or which is that sadness or anger, um, which, uh, you know, it, after a year of, of, grieving and being in in such pain, like if there was something that I could do to not be in that pain, like, why wouldn't I do it? Why wouldn't anyone do it? So that's really, I mean, a, a, a big part of like when that self-compassion can be, um, accessed like through psychoeducation. Um, and I also, you know, with the vagus nerve, which is the nerve that goes through the midline structure of our body. Um, it said that, you know, we, we often will feel, which is, I mean, what body keeps the score is really all about is that like, when we experience trauma, we keep it in our body. Um, so if we can calm our body, we can therefore calm our brain. And if we can calm our brain, we can therefore calm our body. Um, and we can do this through the vagus nerve and, uh, you know, adding in whether it's um, sensory motor type of um, exercises or um, somatic experience exercises, um, that is like also a huge, a huge part of the work that I do and I try to integrate it. Mm, my ADHD is up and alive today. Okay. Um, so. <laughs> And we celebrate it. We celebrate it. Okay. Yes. Um, So, so when we can, uh, when we can include these um, exercises in our session um, and, you know, I will encourage clients to work on these outside of session. um, And a lot of what like sensory motor, for example, which when I did my training for complex uh, like trauma professional. Yeah. That's a lot. It's hard to keep all the letters straight. I I feel you. It's not it's, even just that one. They're all different. And they're all can, different. I can remember all of them. It's like, it's a, it's, 
there's so many acronyms. Like you can't, they're everywhere. They're everywhere. Like whether it's like DBT, CPT, SE, like what, like, I know, I know. And the alphabet soup after people's names, like it's, you know, it's a lot. Um, but when I was doing that training, um, uh, by Janina Fisher, who is like, Oh oh my God. Uh, fangirling, like truly. So amazing. I emailed her after and she emailed me back and I felt like I was like, what? Like just like saying how much I, I appreciated the training and, um, it's like how mate, how impactful it was. Um, anyway, uh, so in the training, she talks a lot about doing the sensory motor stuff. Like, you know, okay, let's, let's just notice, just noticing, um, what your body feels like right now, noticing, um, you know, when, when we're talking about this, you know, traumatic experience, like noticing, um, uh, like what, what does your head feel like? Oh, I have a headache. Okay. Like let's, let's actually focus on that headache. Let's notice that headache, which is so important because so often when we have discomfort, we try to push it away. And if we feel discomfort, we don't like it which makes sense. Again, part of this, you know, self-compassion, it makes sense. Right. Why would we focus on something that we don't mm-hmm. like? Like we're like, it can, it can feel masochistic. It's obviously I'm not trying to convince anyone, you know, I'm not, I am not in the business of convincing. Could you imagine? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> like, but it's hard to tell a client that, Hey, if we focus on the discomfort, if we focus on the pain, you will actually feel better. Yes. Oh, that is, that is such a tricky one. I hear that. I hear you with that. Mm -hmm. And, and I really take it. I, I think the first thing I do with this is like, when someone comes to therapy, I say, you reached out to me. I didn't reach out to you. So some part of you and using parts language, some part of you wants to heal from this. Some part of you wants to talk about it, wants to face this. Probably not all of you, which makes sense. Again, we usually don't want pain but some part of you wants to heal. So let's see if we can get in touch with that part. And framing it from that perspective that like, it's, I mean, it's always their choice, but that they, they brought themselves here. Um, They decided to show up for this therapy session. They decided to, be in this space to spend their time, spend their money. Like what information does that give us? It has to give us some information that some part of you wants to face this. And some part of you must think that this space could be helpful. And I love bringing that up. And I, you know, I think in one perspective, it could be like, it could be seen as like manipulative. Like I'm, I'm, um, 
using therapy against them in some way. Um, however, from the perspective that I, I feel like I come from is like just showing like a strength-based perspective, like you're doing this, you're putting yourself here. Um, even if we're having a conversation of, you know, therapy is stupid or it doesn't work, or, you know, if they're saying, you know, if they're saying things about me, like, I don't know what I'm doing, or, or I just want to see them in pain or whatever. It's like, yes, but we're having this conversation in the therapeutic space and you're still here. You're engaging with me, right? It could be seen as negative, but you're engaging with me. What does that say? Yeah. And which I think, you know, a lot of, um, this goes beyond, you know, grief and trauma, but when we have a client that is angry with us, when we have a client that might, you know, project onto us, obviously we're humans and that cannot feel great. And I think a good therapist will see that as from a strength-based perspective, maybe from, um, or, you know, as this client feels safe enough to be angry with us, the rapport is good enough for them to bring up, Hey, you know, last session, when you said this, it made me feel really small. Um, earlier this week, I had a, I had a client who brought up to me that, um, when she was speaking to, uh, she's in an IOP program as well. Um, speaking to that therapist that runs the program, X, Y, Z would be, would be a beneficial thing to add to the treatment plan. And, and she told me, she's like, you know, it sounds like you spoke about this, but didn't speak to me about this. And it ended up being kind of like a, a misunderstanding, miscommunication, but she thought that I kind of like went behind her back and said like, Hey, the, the client really needs this you should add this to our treatment plan. And I try to be very, very transparent with, with my clients for everything. Um, whether it's, you know, what I am seeing in, in session, what I think would be the best, you know, thing for treatment. Um, so when she brought that up to me, the first thing I said was, I, I feel so grateful that we have the rapport and we have the trust and you feel safe enough in this environment to even have this conversation. And I, I really want to thank you. And I also like brought up like the fact that I don't, I don't remember saying it. It also doesn't mean I 100% did not say it because I can't be 100% sure of really anything. Um, so <laughs> like leaving that room that even like that 0.1% room for flexibility models flexibility. And I think, you know, something that was brought up in the supervision training that I did was in, in that sense, they were talking about supervisees, but I think with, with clients as well, you know, clients, supervisees, children, again, like it kind of spreads wide. They notice what we do and what we say, and they also notice what we don't do and what we don't say. And that every second of the supervision of the parenting process of the therapeutic process, 
is like you're on display. Yeah. And, and the presentness that is so important in the mindfulness that is so important in trauma work that I, that I talk about in the psychoeducation, um, that I, I, I will try to, you know, talk to, you know, supervisees about, um, but that I, I, I share with my clients, like, again, very, trying to be very transparent. You know, if I, if I say something that I, after it comes out of my mouth, I'm kind of like, Ooh, why did I say that? Like, I might, I might go back like after a couple minutes or, you know, whatever they're done speaking, I might say, you know, I, I want to go back to about five minutes ago. And I said this, I, I realized I probably shouldn't have said that. And I just want to apologize for not thinking before I spoke. And maybe it was something they didn't pick up on. Maybe it was something that they absolutely did. And they didn't, they didn't feel comfortable to say like, Hey, uh, that makes me uncomfortable or that makes me feel, you know, um, but it shows that one, I'm human. Your therapist is human. Your therapist also has a life outside of the therapy room and it models like taking responsibility models, accountability, like it's all an opportunity to, to model these things. Um, and within the psychoeducation, if we're talking about mindfulness, I want to, it's, you know, mindfulness isn't just totally about like relaxation or, or imagery or whatever. It's about mindful communication and that everything is kind of integrated into each other. So like when talking about psychoeducation, it will be integrated into just our regular communication. Um, so I feel like I kind of like went all around. There. No, that was, that was great. <laughs> that was wonderful. I think that was a beautiful, like lead into this other piece of the conversation that I, I was wanting to have today together is like this idea of really having a relational model when it comes to like a grief and trauma work. And I mean, I think what you were just saying completely speaks to that. You know, we have to, when we're coming from that relational perspective, right. It's about creating a space that is safe and that is um, present for somebody before you dig into any of the, like the nitty gritty or the details. It's not just a cold, like clinical, like share the facts of your story and then you'll be healed. Right. It's so much more complex and delicate and a dance. And it's part of our job to like be present and like create that. Like we are creating the space for that, for them to do that work. And so I think sharing our humanness as you were saying so beautifully is a huge part of that. Like they, like, we're not more powerful. We're not more important or more intelligent or more anything, Mm -hmm. right? We are, we are human that is in the same space as another human and is just compassionately present for, for their life and for their story. You know, I think that's, that's a huge thing. Exactly. And 
like as a relational therapist, I mean, we, I, a, a part of my, my spiel that I say, mm-hmm. when I um, have a, do like a consultation call with a um, potential client. Um, like I am foundationally a, a relational therapist um, and that the, the relationship, the rapport, the trust that is built within the therapeutic alliance um, in the therapeutic space, like that, that is the most important thing. And I could be the best trauma therapist in Texas, but if I don't have a good relationship with my client, it does not mean anything. And the work won't really get done. Um, now, I mean, again, this is, this is a relational model. There are, there are many models of therapy um, that are not relational and like analytic therapy is, is not relational. Um, and it doesn't mean that work doesn't get done there. Um, but I do think that, you know, for trauma work, it's so, it's really imperative to use a relational model because after trauma, after grief, after a loss, People are, you know, they're mistrusting of the world. They're mistrusting of others. They, they don't know, you know, they, they might not trust themselves. Um, so if I can model safety, if I can model a safe relationship, a trusting relationship, a trustworthy relationship um, in the therapeutic space, like, that shows them one, not everybody is untrustworthy. At least one per we can identify at least one person that is trustworthy or that I can be vulnerable with. And going from a perspective of like, I can't trust anybody or everybody's going to hurt me or everyone's going to leave me. And going from that, starting from the first session and to be, no, I mean, when I think about it really, honestly, even from a consultation call, even before I meet the client, I talk about termination. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like this will not, this will hopefully be a, an impactful relationship and it will not be a lifelong relationship. The relationship will have an expiration date. We don't know when that is. It might not be for years, but it won't be a forever relationship, um, which like can be kind of strange. Like if, if it was like any other type of relationship, like why would we go into that relationship? Like it would be strange um, mm-hmm. and like very unattractive. Like why would I put myself in this situation? Um, mm-hmm. But kind of like setting up expectations that like, even when we know the relationship is going to end it can still be a really important, really impactful relationship. So from a relational model, like we show humanness, we show that like we can provide a space that doesn't, doesn't really get provided elsewhere in a lot of people's lives, even if they have a lot of support even if they, they have a healthy, you know, intimate relationship or healthy friendships, um, like a therapeutic relationship, the therapeutic space is theirs. Like a space that, that 
has their best interest always in mind. Um, Cause again, even in a, in our best relationships, we're still human beings and we still, you know, like might have um, agendas that, that aren't necessarily, you know, malintended, but you know, like if I, if I'm in a conversation with my friend, I might be listening to her, but I also might be thinking about, you know, what, what I also want to say, you know, or I also want to make sure she hears. Um, Mm -hmm. So yeah, coming from that approach will lend more compassion in that space, will lend um, more space for self-compassion, will um, show that like, this is a trustworthy environment to talk about some things you may have never spoken about ever that other people do not know, which, and I think it's therapists. It's a really, I mean, I, I think it's quite the honor, but it's also quite the responsibility of holding something that another human being has not heard before. Yeah. Which again, makes it, I mean, such a, such a like awesome responsibility um, and a very different type of relationship in different space than anything else in life. Yeah. Yeah. I know it's, is such a, it's such a human role and intention, such a unique specific role, right? Like there really aren't a lot of other relationships that are going to be that one way, I guess. Cause like, to your point, like it's, it's our job to be present for that person and and not like a friend or like a family member where it's, it's like supporting each other. Right. And so this is very, very interesting, specific mix of here is another just human to human. And also it's not something you're probably ever going to find in, in this way, in another space. And this doesn't always, I think, um, this doesn't speak to like relational therapy as a whole, but I think one of the reasons why I am so called to this relational approach is because, um, again, I'm very transparent. Well, actually before I try to be mindful of like what I say, um, depending on my, my role, my, my position. So how I am as a therapist in private practice is different than how I was when I was working in a um, treatment center for eating disorders. Mm -hmm. Um, I could be talking about the exact same thing that I'm talking about in my, um, in my private practice. However, I might use more um, self-disclosure in a private practice setting because of the length of time I'll be working with the client, um, you know, just the, my role there, the, the type of treatment I'm giving, I'm, I, you know, at a treatment center, I'm giving a higher level of care, um, mm-hmm. than outpatient it. But I, I think, you know, something that really speaks to the relational approach for me and my work is that, um, 
a lot of people, if not everyone I work with really knows about Drew, knows that I, I, I lost a partner. Um, yeah. and I, and you know, part of that is, is, um, you could Google me and you'll find out very quickly. Um, whether it's like through the Ted talk or through podcasts or through, um, things I've written, um, obviously through this book coming out, like, you know, it's, it's not hidden. Uh, <laughs> right. Right. Um, and it's not a, a main part of my client's therapy at the same time. I, I, one person in particular comes to mind, um, who lost her husband, um, in 2020, um, very suddenly. And we started working together about two or three weeks after that happened. And the rapport that we have, I think is so strong because she knows, and you know, we've talked about, about this particular thing a lot, but she knows that I get it mm-hmm. and not because I've learned about it and not because I took courses on it, but because I've lived it. And of course her grief is different than my grief because grief is always different. And we have a very specific relationship because it's the therapeutic relationship. And it's also a relationship that one of the only relationships in her life that she has with someone who, who has lost a similar person. She, she, she will joke and be like, you know, I know, I know you're right. I just don't feel it right now. Um, or uh, I guess you're right again. Like, and I was like, listen, I can't help it. Like, uh, (laughs) what can I say? It's, it's pretty, it's, it's wild. I mean, to, to, watch someone and and to have that, I mean, to have counter-transference really, um, of, you know, your experience showing up in a way in someone else. Um, and I think that, you know, counter-transference, I think we are taught that it's like bad and transference is bad. Um, but there's a lot of really impactful and really amazing ways that counter-transference and transference can happen. Um, and I think in my work, it's, there's a lot of it. But that is what makes the work so strong and so amazing um, and purposeful for me and impactful and healing for my client. So, yeah, just another important way that I, I think the relational model like helps this work. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. As you're talking about that, I'm thinking so many things, but it's so true because, you know, I it is a weird dynamic like when I was in school and I went to school for counseling so it was very we did a lot of that reading on like theory and all of these things so it's not a bad thing inherently but the ideas of like counter-transference and transference were always framed as like problems to solve right like if you are noticing this that is a problem to solve you better like cut that off real quick Right. But actually, the more the more I actually practice kind of to to what you're saying, the more like I I think I see that 
Um, and I've experienced that, of course, it's important to recognize that it's happening, right? We don't want it to just like fly under the radar and let it run the show. But I think it's actually an amazing tool for us to use to co-regulate, right? So like I, um, when I do trauma work, I, I use brain spotting, which is like similar to EMDR. And we talk about this idea of limbic countertransference, right? Where your limbic system is is picking up and like matching the other person's. And what a beautiful tool to like be able to recognize that and notice that and work with that to to like co-regulate body and spirit. You know, it is about the verbal processing in some ways, but it's also about like the relation of our bodies together in the space and our energy together in the space and how all of these systems that we carry as humans on so many levels are, are like having a dialogue all, all their own. You know, I think, I, I don't know. I think counter-transference and transference are not bad things at all. So I'm really, I don't know. I'm, I'm glad to hear, hear you talk about that. Cause I don't think, I think we've demonized them for a long time. I don't think that they need to be. I think they're just, part of what happens in human interaction. We kind of can't help, but have it like that is, that is what humanness is. And yeah, I mean, definitely like in school, it's like framed this uh, very bad thing. You have to get supervision for it. You have to fix it. If it had, I mean, from my memory of like learning about it, it was like, if it happens, like, uh oh, like that mm-hmm. says something about you, and it just makes it so scary and like shameful. Like there, it was like I feel like it was from my memory. It was framed in a very shameful way. Yes, better not let this happen. It's dangerous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which mm-hmm. like it can be for sure, but as you said, like as long as we are mindful that it's happening. We need to be aware it's happening um, and not let it run the show, but it can be an incredible tool that, I mean, just like in this work can be helpful in so many ways, like countless ways. So yeah. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. We need to uh, make sure the schools are reframing this because would they just need a rebrand i feel like poor counter transference and tra- they just both need a little rebrand they need mm-hmm. a little reframe it's okay we can make that happen we can work on it slowly but surely we are rebranding we are leading yeah. the rebranding mission yeah yes <laughs> well um i i want to be mindful of your time but i also really want to hear about your book i mean i could I could talk forever. I have like a thousand questions that we could go through, but I really want to hear about your book. So tell, tell us a little bit about that process and it's, it's available for pre-sale, right? Like just give us, give us all the lowdown on it. I'm excited. So, um, so I guess technically you could say I've been working on it kind of unknowingly working on it since Mm -hmm. 2013 poetry that is in it um was written in 2013 so it is a collection of um like a narrative 
um, throughout and uh, letters I've written to Drew and poetry that I've written. Um, and the poetry, some of it is, is about Drew. Some of it is about um, friends. Some of it's about other relationships I've had. Some of it is just, is about being a woman. So, I mean, it, you know, there's a lot of different things. Um, and it's funny cause you know, after Drew passed away, I started writing, um, these letters, um, I think a couple months after, and I would write every night to him. And I, uh, and I, I share the story in the book, but uh, you know, talking to one of Drew's friends that I, I became friends with and I'm still friends with today. I'm in a consultation group with her, actually. She's a, um, she's a counselor and wow. she asked me, she's like, do you ever think like you would publish these letters? And I was like, what? Like, no, like, why would I do that? And then like, thinking about that turned into like a maybe, but what would that even look like? Why do people care? Like, you know, all this stuff. So like I had these letters, um, I stopped doing the letters towards the end of that year, 2015, um, which was a very, I mean, a very, very tough thing to do. Um, because of all these things that we make up with grief, like these, these associations and, and meaning kind of arbitrary meanings that we put to things, um, that is just part of the grief process, but I would write to him every once in a while, just kind of randomly throughout the year, maybe on a birthday or on the anniversary of his death. Um, and I also, you know, was writing poetry during this time to, to get me through like this process through the grief process, um, continue to write poetry to get me through, um, the continued grief process I've felt, you know, with Drew and also, you know, with other things as well. Um, and when I really started focusing on, okay, like I would like to write a book, what could it look like? Um, I decided that like, though, I do think my experience of grief is, is worthy of a book. I also didn't want it to be like all about me. So I wanted to get other people's experience on grief because I knew my experience did not really capture grief because it's so, it's so big. Um, and even, even what I have in the book doesn't capture total grief either, but, um, I started collecting, uh, research from, from different people, um, whether it was like dates I I went on, whether it was Uber drivers, people I spoke to on planes, um, you know, friends and family sending out this Google form um, with the uh, prompt, um, tell me about your grief. And it was short, simple to the point, not a lot of direction. People could talk about whatever they wanted to. And, uh, it was impactful what I got back and really, I mean, it was, it was quite amazing to read, um, or to hear if I'm, you know, talking to someone and through that, I, I did, uh, some like identifying of themes and, and similar experiences and, and very different experiences, 
Um, and I decided that when I really wanted, when I really started like kind of framing what the book will look like and how I should outline the book, the first part of the book, um, has letters, has poetry, um, and this narrative of, of my experience with Drew, um, you know, being with Drew and losing Drew and kind of what, how I got to where I am now, um, more or less. So the second part of the book, um, is more about the research is more about, um, some psychoeducation, more about, you know, what we, what we see in grief, what we see in trauma. Um, why do we see it? Why does this happen? Like this, this kind of communal experience of grief. Um, and I also talk about some clients that I have worked with and, and their experiences, um, with grief and, and with trauma and, you know, um, how that also kind of blends into what I saw in the research. And it was strange because, you know, the process of writing it was sometimes challenge, like emotionally challenging. Um, I do think that there was some type of distance I had with myself of being very like focused on this is a book and a task. And, and I, I, need to organize and I have to, you know, say everything I want to say in like a fashion that, that people will enjoy but then also that I enjoy and make sense, like is, is English. Um, so, and I worked with a developmental editor, um, who was very, very helpful, um, and kind of like organizing thoughts and stuff. But, um, it wasn't as like emotionally challenging as I thought it would be. Uh, I think a part of that too, is like, I, I'm adding so many things that I, especially for the first part, the narrative was new in the sense of I was newly writing it. Um, but the letters had already been written. Um, it was a, an interesting experience going through all the letters that I hadn't in, in a really long time. And one of the first things, if not the first, I think it is the first thing in the book that I have, it says, um, have you ever written something that you, I can't remember the exact wording now. Have you ever, have you ever read something that, that you wrote long ago? There's no other time travel experience like it because when I read those letters, I think 9.9 times out of 10, I was in my bed writing them. So I knew where I was, but I, I was brought back, um, mentally, physically brought back to that space of where I was and then coming and then like ending the letter, ending that part of the letter and bringing back to like, okay, it's 2020, 2021, 2022. Like, and I am in my apartment and I live in Austin, Texas, and I am a therapist. Like what my life is, I didn't have any of it then. I couldn't imagine any of it then. And something that actually that Bessel van der Kolk says is in trauma work, the, um, the, we need to talk about imagination 
because an imagination is a very big part of trauma work, because if we cannot imagine it, we cannot heal from it. We can't, we can't get there. So I'll ask my clients sometimes, can you imagine a life where you miss your husband so much and you can laugh with your friends and you can go out to dinner and be present where you honor your husband in this way and then can you know have a have a successful or or you know productive day at, at work later on because like if we can't imagine it we can't get there our like our our brain doesn't know the path to get there if we can't imagine this this future place and like rereading those letters and reading some of the the responses i got or or listening to the the voice recordings of the responses i got these people, some of them currently were, were not in that place, could never see that. Um, and I think the purpose of this book for me, um, one similar to like the, the TED Talk, is that I want people to know that Drew existed. I want people to know that he was loved, that he is more than just how he died. Um, that he was an incredibly selfless person. Um, and I also want people to know that they aren't alone in their grief because it's significantly isolating. And a, a kind of a, a weird paradox that happens in grief is we feel so isolated. We wish people understood. We say no one understands. And then someone comes around and they're like, oh, you know, I, I also had this really big loss. And then our mind goes to, well, my loss is different. You, you, you still can't understand my loss. My loss is different. My loss is special. My loss, you know, like our grief is, is, you know, it becomes like a, this is crass, but like a pissing contest. No, <laughs> like, I didn't meant to care. I hear it. You know? yeah. Um, like, yeah, they lost this thing, this person, but my loss is so much more. So even with an opportunity to find this like community or to find um understanding in someone, we then kind of switch frames often. Um and not every time and not everyone, but we often will be like, mm, no, my, my grief is different, which is hard when, you know, there has been a loss and there are multiple people grieving the loss, um, where we could find that community. And we also feel like, no, I can't, I can't relate to them because mine is different. Mine is special. Um, which I'm sure people will feel if, you know, when they read this book. Um, but, but I think that was a really important part of like adding in other people's experiences is that like, you know, not everyone's going to find language or, or their story within my story. Um, but maybe they can find it in, you know, 
a certain quote that I have from a research participant um, or talking about, you know, a client experience. So I, I'm really excited for it. I'm very, very proud of it. Um, there were some parts of the, um, recently when I was going over the, the editor's remarks and making changes and stuff, like I read through the entire book, like, like really, really like had to be very mindful of like every sentence, every, every word. Um, and some of it was like, dang, I wrote that. Okay. Like, (laughs) that's awesome. That's That sounds really great. Like, (laughs) so yeah, it's like, it's a dream of mine that I can't believe it is coming true. And, and the opportunity came like very randomly. Um, this is actually kind of a funny story because, um, so April, March or April of last year. Um, so I have a profile on, um, speaker hub, which is a, a website where you can find, you know, speaker keynote speakers or, you know, things for yeah. your organization. Um, and I've never gotten any hits on it. It's not, I kind of like, I also don't like check on it very often. It's, um, not something I really upkeep, but I got a, an email saying, Oh, this person wants to connect with you on speaker hub, sent you a message. And, uh, it was the, the president, the CEO of, um, uh, the global center for religious research. And he asked me to, um, if I was, if I would be interested in speaking at their international conference for religious trauma, um, on using EMDR with religious trauma. And I wrote him back and I said like, wow, like an amazing opportunity. Um, and I, 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 I'm honored that, you know, you, you asked me, but you know, I don't know if I'm really the right fit. Um, I, I work with trauma all the time. I do EMDR all the time, but I, I don't have experience doing EMDR specifically with religious trauma. It just hasn't come up in my clients yet. You know, like, I don't know. Um, but like, thank you so much for the opportunity, you know, whatever. Send the email. Uh, my siblings and I have a WhatsApp chat going on because usually one of us is always not in the United States. So, you know, we're, we have a WhatsApp group and I send a message saying like, Oh, I just got this amazing opportunity to speak at this conference. But, you know, I just, I said no, because I, I ha- don't really have experience in this particular thing. And my sister, Kyla, who is a, also a, a two-time TEDx speaker and um, a professional speaker uh, runs in the family. And I was about to say, <laughs> wow, y'all are like an impressive bunch. That's incredible. <laughs> She was like, she was like, what are you doing? Like, say yes and figure it out. Like you figure it out later. Like you say yes now. And I was like, yeah. oh, okay. Okay. So I, uh, I emailed back 15 minutes later. He's not emailing me back yet. And I was like, but you know what? I could do it. Mm-hmm. And I, again, very transparent. I'm a transparent person. I was like, but listen. I don't have experience working with clients with religious trauma. This is what I do have experience in. This is what I could talk about. 
And he sends me an email back. He's like, sounds great. And I was like, oh, okay. So, you know, he's like, okay, send me a, a bio, send me a picture, we'll put you on the website, da, da, da. So in my bio, I had, um, like, you know, and currently doing research for um, an upcoming book on, on grief. Mm-hmm. Um, and because it's an academic organization, um, he's like, oh, what, what, um, like, what's your research about? Like, I'm, I'm interested in that. And I tell him and, you know, saying it's about grief. And this was in, um, this was last year, so 2021. And um, he was like, oh, well, we'd love to publish your research. And I'm like, why? What? Like, <laughs> like what? And then I was like, oh God, did I oversell this? Like, and it was, it was weird. Like I, you know, I got into that like imposter syndrome kind of mm-hmm. space. Um, mm-hmm. And again, very upfront. I was like, you know, it's not research that you're probably used to. It's, it's, you know, qualitative research. It's, it's kind of loose research. Um, you know, interviewing and, and, you know, putting things together and whatever. So he's like, well, it, it, I mean, is really, uh, it speaks to the time right now with, you know, everyone's grieving and, uh, you know, we could probably get full funding and whatever, like I, you know, we'd love to publish it. And I was like, what? And it seems like a little too good to be true. So I like went back and forth. I was like, do I trust this? Like, this is so easy. Like what? Huh? Um, but it was a real deal and signed a book contract like a month later and really like wrote a book. Um, Oh my gosh. That's so amazing. Now it's coming out and it's releasing on February 8th, um, which is, uh, my grandfather's birthday. He passed away in 2019. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's also the day that I met Drew. So. Yeah. Wait, was that on purpose? Did you all choose that release date on purpose? Yeah. So actually the release date was going to be the seventh. Um, mm-hmm. And then just kind of like, if, if not sooner, actually, it, it probably would have been ready sooner. Um, mm-hmm. But I think a, a date was just kind of picked just to have like, um, just to have a date. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well since it's almost the date, like, why don't we just make it the day after? Because it's a real, it's a really meaningful date. Um, looking back at the past, like never knowing that the day I met Drew would also years later be the day that I release a book about our relationship and about his death. Like just, I mean, Mm. I feel like whole body chills. I mean, it's not even my book. And I feel like I had to just take a, people probably heard me. I had to just like take a huge (laughs) like breath. It's just, yeah. I don't know what the adjective is for that, but it's big. Yeah. I'm very, I have a lot of gratitude and I'm very, very proud of, um, this thing that will always be part of the world. Like, well, you know, has surpassed Drew has, you know, will surpass me. Um, Dream. Absolutely. Oh, well, 
I'm that is I'm so thrilled for you. Like that is incredible. I can't wait to read it. I cannot wait for other people to be able to read it. Um, is there a specific place where people can find it? Like, should they go to buy the presale through your website or through a bookstore website? So there is, um, so the presale is available, um, on, uh, the, the publishing website. However, mm-hmm. on my website there, I have a page about the book okay. um, where there's a link to cool. uh, that kind of brings you to the publisher's website. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, when it's, you know, when it's released, it will be the, the same link. Um, sure. it will also be available, um, through Barnes Noble and Amazon and, mm-hmm. um, we're doing like international sellers as well. Um, so, but I always, I, I will probably encourage people to buy it from the publisher because it will. Um, yeah. If I'm being honest, I get, I, I get a bit of bigger royalty. Um, okay. Let's just, you know, it's your book. It's your work. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, I'm, I, Totally. Absolutely. Let's support you, the, the creator, the art, the author, the artist, like the researcher. Absolutely. We will, we will add the link to your website and the publisher just to make sure people, people can know where to find it. Yeah. Um, oh, I, like I said, I could keep talking forever, but <laughs> we will, um, we'll just have to have you back on to talk about more stuff. Yeah. We'll just have to have an episode have part to. two. I would love that. If you're open to that, we'll have you Absolutely. back on for a part two. Um, but at the end of our conversation, we always ask our guests to share a practice or an experience of some kind that might give our listeners, maybe other um, helping professionals or non-clinicians too, just like a taste of, of the work that you do. So I was wondering if there is anything that I could experience maybe with you to finish our time up today. Yeah. So I will tell people to, uh, you know, get comfy, sit back, close your eyes if you like, notice your breathing and notice yourself sitting in the chair. Notice the texture of the fabric, cushion at your back, and notice how your body feels. Allow your attention to notice any disturbance, any tension or discomfort that you're feeling, and allow it to show up as a color. Could be one color or many colors. Notice where inside the color rests. Begin to gather all these pieces of color together. Notice how all the pieces easily adhere to each other and easily come together in a group. Bring all the pieces of color together 
into one group. Scan inside again, looking for any other pieces of color that are remaining and bring those into the group. And just scan one more time to look for any other pieces of color that are remaining. Now take this group of color and shape it into a ball. Notice that it easily takes that shape. And then take that ball of color, compress it into an easily movable size, noticing that it easily compresses. Now I want you to think about where you can put this ball of color that is safe, and secure, but away from you. Think about where you'd like to store it. Now put it in that place and look back at it and ask yourself, does it feel safe and secure? Notice that it's there, safe and secure and away from you. And when you're ready, come back here. Oh, thank you so much. That was, that was beautiful. I loved that. I loved the, like the, the color idea but also like the collecting mm -hmm. of all the I mean what oh thank you so much for an honor to experience that with you today thank you for sharing that with us no problem it's a it's a container exercise I use um mm -hmm. from EMDR but um I use for everything for everyone so yeah it's really it's a it's a good one <laughs> yeah, it is a good one. It's a good one. It's a, it, I've never, I've never experienced that specific container exercise before. So it's really lovely. Thank you so much. Um, and thank you so much for sharing your time with us today, Ariel. This has been a joy. I've, like I said, like I could keep talking for hours. So um, I really, really appreciate you being here with us for this conversation and, and for you sharing um all of your story and your wisdom with our listeners today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So for those of uh, y'all who are listening, who want um, more information on Ariel's work, you can hit up her website, which we will put in the show notes. Is there anywhere else that people can find you or is that just the best place for people to learn more about what you do? That's probably the best place i have links to okay. my talk there um okay and the book and, and mm -hmm. you know what i do um yeah okay awesome well we'll make sure to get it all in there and again thank you so much for your time and i i hope that you have a beautiful rest of your day thank you you too thanks so much for joining us today 
Don't forget to check out the show notes for all of the resources we mentioned in the episode, as well as additional resources from Ariel, including where you can purchase her book, Adding the E. And remember, we want to hear from you too. Is there a topic you want to learn more about or a guest you think would be perfect for our show? How can we support you as a mental health professional in your own learning and growing journey? Reach out to us at www.academyimh.com because we love to hear from our listeners. Take good care of yourself and we'll talk again soon. Bye.